0: think we're moving in a very positive direction in terms of trans people being able to come out and get the services they need. And oh my gosh, particularly youth, you know, not having to wait until they're adults to be able to live their life in an authentic way and just be able to live like everybody else. It's a human right.
1: As the field of transgender healthcare continues to evolve, there are lots of different opinions on the best way to support trans youth. As we've discussed now in almost every episode, trying to figure out the next right step is a hard thing to determine. Everyone has an opinion, and most of those opinions are pretty ill-informed. However, even among the community of affirming providers, there are lots of opinions on what should or should not happen for youth. According to the WPATH standard of care, once a person is 18, they can access care through the informed consent model, meaning they walk in, they say they're trans, they receive education about hormones and what they're gonna do to their body, They sign some forms, they're good to go. There are many individuals who feel that this should also be the path for youth. According to the WPATH standard of care, youth are required to undergo a comprehensive mental health assessment before they can proceed with HRT. Some in the field, as well as within the trans community, feel like this is gatekeeping and creates unnecessary barriers to getting life-saving care. Others within the community feel that this is a necessary step To assure that trans youth are clear on what they're experiencing and are ready for all of the changes that come with HRT. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host, slash head counselor, Mackenzie Dunham. I know when it comes to me and the work that I do with youth preparing to move forward with transition, I'm on the lookout for several things. How long has this been a thing? How does the timing of identity align with development? what other mental health issues are in the mix, and how ready is this family for change. My approach to this work has been informed by a number of things. The standard of care, my work in pediatric clinics really helped me understand how doctors take in information and what is helpful for them to know and understand. And then I've also done extensive additional training from other professionals who do this work, as well as a certificate program. I've taken all of this information in and developed a method that aims to paint a clear picture of who this person is and who their family is and what their relationships are like, what their struggles are, and what their gender journey has been like thus far. I tell families in the beginning that I'm not someone to say yes or no, but I am someone that'll do my best to help forge a path forward that meets the needs of the child and helps the family have some direction on how to navigate this journey in a cohesive way. I can't ignore that I do get put into the position of gatekeeper, even though I really, really, really hate it. Shouldn't a person just be able to say what they need and we believe them? Parts of me that really push back against the idea of needing a mental health provider to weigh in, because shouldn't a doctor be able to assess what's going on with their patient? And at the same time, there are other parts of me that know that none of this is that simple, and as much as we'd like to treat them as adults, adolescents are not adults and a lot happens during adolescence that is important and should be explored that's why a team approach is best when one exists today we're going to hear from Dr. Laura Edwards-Sleeper Laura has quite the reputation in this work she's a pioneer and had the courage to step up for trans kids years before any of the other gender clinics started doing this work Dr. Edwards-Sleeper is currently an associate professor at Pacific University in Oregon was the founding psychologist in the first youth transgender clinic in the United States, the first to prescribe puberty blockers to transgender youth. She is currently the chair of the Child and Adolescent Committee for the World Professional Association of Transgender Health and is involved heavily in the revision of the WPATH standard of care And she's also served on the American Psychological Association subcommittee that developed guidelines for working with transgender individuals, as well as a Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Committee that created a consensus statement about the harm in using conversion therapy for LGBTQ youth. She has a private practice outside of Portland, Oregon, where she works with transgender and gender-diverse children, adolescents, and adults for therapy and assessment. She also provides consultation and training to providers and clinics around the country, And internationally. She is the go to source for media outlets, including The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, BBC, and most recently, 60 Minutes. As I'm sure you figured out by now, this field is rapidly progressing. And as more perspectives are added, including more community voices, practices have evolved. And as this field progresses, people within the community tend to have lots of opinion about Laura's approach. Most of the criticism she receives comes from a loving place for trans youth. Her biggest critics argue that youth don't need an assessment and that we should believe they are who they say they are and allow them to move forward. Laura stepped into this arena and was brave enough to stand up and say what she believed. She's basing it on years of experience and research with literally the most knowledgeable people on this subject in the entire world. Her approach is thorough and longer than most clinicians that have less training on the subject. She is mindful of how transition affects the whole family, And she also reports that the gatekeeper thing is something she tries not to be. She and I don't see eye to eye on every subject, but it would be really weird if we did. I mean, this field is growing and expanding exponentially. Of course people are going to have different opinions and do things differently. She's a psychologist. I'm a social worker. It's 100% okay and allowed that we have different approaches to this work. We do see eye to eye on the things that matter most protecting trans kids, supporting families, involving parents, and giving kids access to the care they need. So I thought we would just kind of start by addressing the elephant in the room, at least the elephant in the room that I know of. I mean, parents who are listening probably won't be aware of it, but medical care for trans kids in general. The thing that we know as professionals who work in this field, right, is that there's some controversy around how kids and families should proceed into making medical decisions and there's sort of these sort of i wouldn't call them extreme camps but there are definitely there's the camp of you know we just go with what the kid says and then there's the camp of we do a comprehensive assessment and that is what the standard of care is right now is that there's a comprehensive assessment and you do a lot of training on that and have sort of been the american pioneer of that work. Can you share a little bit about what your experience has been like in developing it and why you feel like it's so important? Well, like you
0: said, it is the standard of care and is continue will continue to be the standard of care. I'm involved in the, the revision of the standards of the W standards of care and it's you know, nothing's going to change other than it being even more clear that it's critical. So, you know, that is probably, you know, one of the main reasons that I think it's so important that people kind of do it and understand that it's recommended, you know, for very good reasons. And, you know, I do think that there are different camps, you know, I kind of, at times feel like they are pretty extreme in terms of, you know, one camp feeling that trans youth should never receive medical interventions and trans identities aren't even a real thing. Or if they are, people should wait until they're at least 18, you know, if not older to do anything permanent to their body, um, with the other extreme camp being that we should approach the work with youth in the same way we approach it with adults, which I think is just misguided and really not supported by the research on adolescent development, not even on trans stuff, but just on adolescent development. I have always followed the standards of care and also just the evidence-based empirically supported practice of, you know, doing a more comprehensive assessment like we would for any kind of complex issue. So, you know, the biggest thing in my mind is just recognizing that, that adolescence is a different developmental stage for, and there's a lot of research that supports that. And so I think in order to really give youth the most individualized care and treatment recommendations, like we would do for other kinds of mental health or medical issues, you know, doing an assessment isn't a really positive thing. You know, if it can be done collaboratively and in an affirming way, you know, Invol- if it involves the parents and then helps move them forward in the process, you know, I think it can be also very helpful. Ideally, it, you know, will bring up things that maybe it would be helpful for the kid to focus on in therapy, either related to gender or not. But, you know, a lot of the youth coming forward with gender related issues also have mental health stuff going on that sometimes isn't being treated. Yeah. So I think there's just a lot of benefits to it. And then the other reason that I, that I use that approach is, like I said, I mean, it is empirically supported. What I mean by that is that the one study that we have that shows positive outcomes for youth, for trans youth who have gone through medical interventions, you know, have pursued those, included youth who did go through a comprehensive assessment, <laughs> actually much more comprehensive than what I do and what I have kind of brought to the United States you know, it's comprehensive and like to really understand all the different pieces of what's going on, what's causing the dysphoria. Is this someone who would really most likely benefit from medical interventions or are there reasons to maybe slow things down and explore other things first? Um, Again, with the ultimate goal of, of just best outcome for the kids. I mean, I certainly understand why it's controversial and why people have, concerns about it, you know, if you think about the sort of historical trauma that the uh, trans adult world has experienced from having to go through assessments that were very pathologizing with mental health and medical providers and, you know, jump through unnecessary hoops and all of those kinds of things. And I mean, and I'm not in favor of that for adults unless they're seeking it, you know, of course, then that's, it's fine. But, but I, again, I just think it's so critical to recognize that Adolescents are different than adults. And so we just need to approach it differently.
1: I think that every parent who's raised a teenager or has interacted with a teenager would agree with you that adolescents are different (laughs) than adults, right? There's less impulse control. There's, you know, there's a lot more. I mean, the whole phase of adolescence is really about identity development. So there's a lot of identity being formed, not just around gender. What sorts of things would you encourage a parent to look for, recognize? when their kid says, hey, I'm trans, I want to move forward with hormones, like, and parents are like, okay, this is, you know, what, as most parents tend to be, it seems, Mm -hmm. Um, how would a parent know that this is something that they need to move on? Mm. I guess my question.
0: Well, I think, you know, it can be very tricky, because there are a lot of different ways that this sometimes presents for kids and for adolescents in particular. You know, there are certainly the ones who from a very young age have been gender nonconforming or even saying, you know, I was born in the wrong body or, you know, and even so, you know, some younger kids socially transition at a young age. And those cases tend to be more straightforward. Um, not always. They they can be complicated for their own reasons. But for adolescents, um, some have that kind of history. And so often, you know, it's not quite as surprising or difficult for parents if there's you know, dots that they can connect from the kid's childhood that kind of make all all of it ends up making sense. But there's a subset of adolescents who don't really have that history. And they will tell you that they didn't experience gender dysphoria in childhood, and they were perfectly happy with their assigned gender. And so I think those are the kids who are a little bit more difficult to figure out in some ways and harder for parents to understand and feel supportive of particularly with moving forward quickly with irreversible medical interventions. Mm-hmm. In my experience, actually, a lot of those parents are very supportive and they are many times they're even happy to, you know, let the kid change their name and pronouns and clothing, you know, gender expression. And will say things like if my, if my adolescent really is trans, I will totally support, a, you know, medical interventions, but it just feels confusing because there was no, there's no history from what we can tell. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that. Those parents, you know, certainly can benefit from, you know, first of all, consulting with professionals in the area to just get support and guidance and suggestions. Um, I think those parents, you know, benefit from, you know, connecting their child with a therapist who will help the kid explore their identity, but also be supportive in the process and will involve the parents in the process. I think that's one of the key things. I, that's probably the biggest complaint I, I receive from parents all over the country. Actually, um, who consult with me, is that they can't find a therapist for their teenager who will listen to them and listen to their perspective and involve them in the process. And so parents feel very alienated and like this whole thing is happening without them having any control or say or you know even input into the into the process. Mm-hmm. And so. So I think that that's really important for parents to feel, you know, empowered to find someone who will include them. Probably most importantly is that parents just do everything they can to maintain and um, sort of grow their relationship with their kid, you know, and keep that relationship as strong as possible. Um, And often that does mean supporting their kid with the name pronouns, you know, letting their kid experiment with some of that stuff and not digging your heels in because that feels uncomfortable or you're questioning it, but just to really support that.
1: Why is it, do you think that some clinicians or groups of clinicians don't include the parent? Because I mean, I am in the same camp as you. Like if I can have parent involvement, that is what I want. When a kid transitions, the whole family transitions, like it's a big deal. So I really know that and value the parent involvement in my process. So just wondering why you think that that wouldn't happen?
0: You know, I think honestly the main reason is that oftentimes parents identify therapists who aren't necessarily trained to work with youth. So they're adult clinicians, you know, it's clinicians who are trained to work with adults, but the clinician feels comfortable with working with adolescents because you know they can sit and talk. You don't have to get on the floor and play right. with them. Very different. <laughs> so they see them as very similar, you know, to an adult in terms of a lot of things. And in some aspects of mental health treatment, you know, like depression, anxiety, you can use a lot of the same treatments for adults that you would with an adolescent. So that makes sense. But I think the piece that then is missing is the importance. Well, two things, one, individuals who aren't trained to work with adolescents, maybe don't fully understand the complexities of adolescent development. So that can really complicate things in terms of them just understanding that there could be other things going on, that need to be explored and understood better in terms of gender. And then the second piece is that they don't maybe recognize the importance of involving the parents in the process and how that actually will ultimately be best for the child Mm -hmm. if the parents are involved and can learn how to be supportive and all of that. So I think that's really the biggest, probably the biggest reason. There probably are some clinicians in this particular area that you know, that do, that really want to advocate for these kids, which we all do. I think anyone doing this work wants to advocate for the kids, but kind of sees their role as being entirely about supporting the adolescent, even if it means disrupting the relationship with the parents. (laughs) And so, and it doesn't really see, I guess, the benefit of just maintaining that, having that relationship be maintained and even improved upon. But I think it's probably more the the former that it's just people aren't as familiar maybe sometimes that it's the involving parents is a critical part. Yeah.
1: I think the other thing too, like I've seen come up is that sometimes kids are like, I don't want my parent involved because there's a lot of fear and anxiety and they don't want their parent to say no and they don't want to dive into the weeds of what's happening with their whole family. So I see that come up as well. I I don't know about you, but when that happens for me, I just tend to sort of like, okay, well, let's, dive into that mm-hmm. and resistance before we move forward. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, right. No, and I mean, that definitely happens, or there's certain things that they don't want their parents to hear about, or, you know, but my, I find that, you know, the large majority of the kids I work with want their parents to understand, and they want the support of their Same. parents. And if they trust me enough, if I'm able to build enough of a r- rapport with them, relationship with them, you know, we often get to a point almost always where they're perfectly fine with me involving the parents in one way or another, you know, either meeting with the parents separately or bringing the parents in, you know, to sessions with the kid. So, you know, I think most of the time that has been my experience, but there certainly are times when, you know, the the adolescent does not want their parents to be involved. And I also want to highlight that, of course, there are going to be circumstances where it really is not in the, in the adolescent's best interest to involve the parents. If the parents really are not, you know, willing at all to be supportive and it's just going to be harmful to the adolescent, then, you know, then we wouldn't do that. Absolutely.
1: So if a family is looking for an assessment and they have no experience with like the mental health universe, how do they know they're getting what they need? Does that make sense? Like if they go to a therapist and they're (laughs) like, Hey, I work with trans people, but the therapist maybe isn't skilled in how to assess for hormone readiness or even to assess gender. um, How would a parent know that they're in their right place?
0: Hmm. Hmm. That that is also one of the most common questions I get from parents and I think is one of the more challenging things um, for parents to find. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I do think that, you know, interviewing therapists is important for therapists to do that. And I would probably, you know, I would recommend just asking the therapist questions first about what their approach is to involving the parents in the process. So that would be one thing, kind of just in general, not specifically related to gender stuff. And then, you know, I would ask what what is the therapist's philosophy around supporting gender diverse and trans youth, um, and, and with adolescents in particular. You know, what is and what experience have they had? What you know? What kind of assessments do they do? Or what sort of therapy do they do with their kids? What does that actually look like? And the answers that I would like to hear or feel confident about would be things like, that would show that the therapist recognizes that there can be complex factors that maybe do need to be explored further, and that it's not as simple always as If your child says they're trans, then they are. And if you don't believe it and you're not willing to schedule an appointment with the endocrinologist like next week, then you're not being supportive as parents. You know, if that's the kind of response that the the therapist gives, I would say that that's probably not going to be the most helpful Mm -hmm. (laughs) relationship. And then on the flip side, if it's a therapist who is extremely skeptical of any child or adolescent knowing their identity and benefiting from medical intervention, um, I would steer away from that person as well. So somebody who takes a more balanced, thoughtful, holistic, individualized approach, sort of recognizing that there's a lot of ways this can look and that there's a there's no one right path or a certain speed at which every adolescent should move through this process. If there's a, kind of a, a nuance to the approach, I think that's how you would know it would probably be someone that knows what they're doing.
1: Great. I think parents would be really pissed if they heard your answer just now. And then I didn't ask like, what sorts of things do come up for adolescents that might confuse this and make them think maybe it's one thing and it's something else, or it's like a whole bunch of things.
0: Um, so yeah, that's, it's a tricky question, but I, you know, what I have found is that for some kids, it can be more serious mental health issues that, you know, are complicating things. And so making the kid feel really different or, not understood. And then they learn about trans identities and they think, well, maybe that kind of explains why I'm so depressed and so anxious. Mm-hmm. And the reality is they could be depressed and anxious and trans. Right. <laughs> so that's the part that a skilled clinician needs to figure out and tease apart and a, a comprehensive assessment would help provide some insight into. So it could be that it could, you know, there's a lot of ways that youth, I think sometimes do feel different. And now that gender is something that we can explore, you know, that's like youth are given permission to really think about their identity, which I think is a wonderful thing. They take advantage of that as they should. And during adolescence, they think about their sexual orientation, they think about religion and spirituality, and they think about their gender. But again, if they are, you know, if they maybe always felt different, because maybe, maybe they're on the autism spectrum, or maybe they're in the gifted program, or, you know, maybe they just never fit in, Like with the other whatever assigned gender they are at birth, kids, you know, for whatever reason, and then they learn about trans identities, they may jump to the conclusion prematurely that that explains maybe that explains why I feel so different. Again, it could it could be what explains why they feel different, but it also could be these other things um, that needs to be teased apart. Another one that that comes up sometimes is a trauma. You know, like if a kid experienced like a really significant traumatic event or abuse of some kind, you know, it, it could lead to confusion about gender and it, and then that could mean that, yeah, they really just need to address the trauma and then maybe the dysphoria will go away, but it also, it could impact their identity in a way that they still would benefit from transitioning. So just because a kid experiences trauma and has gender dysphoria does not mean that they absolutely shouldn't um, transition or that they're not trans um so that gets very complicated too but certainly something that would want you know i would think would be important to look in look at more closely
1: when it comes to trauma because this is a really common question right like this thing happened in a kids you know history and could that be what's doing this part of it is like knowing that lots of kids experience trauma and don't experience gender dysphoria you can certainly experience gender dysphoria and have trauma and wanting to sort of help parents sort through that or just not immediately jump to the conclusion of like, oh, well, there is molestation or sexual abuse or whatever. Um, This is a hard question. I'm sure you are going to not be able to answer. Um, Do you have any sort of like estimation on how prevalent that is, the it's trauma and not gender?
0: I do not know research on that. I mean, I know that the research does not suggest that there's a strong correlation. So, you know, we definitely don't want to jump to the conclusion that for all trans people, it's because of trauma. (laughs) Like that is definitely not true. Um, I would say in my own practice, it's not very common. I mean, there are certainly traumatic events that do happen to kids. And sometimes let's not forget that if a kid is really gender Dysphoric or gender nonconforming, they may be the target of things that sure. result in tra- traumatic events to them. So it could be that, you know, they're, you know, just not in an environment that's supportive of their gender nonconformity. And then, you know, they are experiencing abuse or whatever as a result of that. So it certainly could go that direction too. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say in my experience, it is not that common that that has come up where it's sort of a red flag where I'm like, okay, we need to d- dive into that you know, deeper. But it does, it does sometimes come up, you know, and so obviously, I think it's just important, like with everything else in the assessment process to just, you know, look at it and try to make
1: sense of it. Sure. What other things do you look at in your assessment process? I say this already sort of knowing, but listeners don't. (laughs) So... (laughs) So, yeah, so, uh, you
0: know, my, the assessment process that I sort of adapted from the Dutch um, a number of years ago is just, it's just very comprehensive um, psychosocial assessment really is a big part of it, but then it weaves in lots of different aspects of gender identity. So, and then in addition involves a lot of deeper dive into gender identity development, as well as whatever, you know, medical intervention, if, if that is part of what's on the table, you know, the family is thinking about to make sure that the kid and the parents have realistic expectations for whatever that intervention is, whether it's hormones or blockers or surgery. I always spend equal time with the youth alone. And then with the parents to gather information from everyone, the other parts of it, besides gender identity that we would do in pretty much any diagnostic assessment include, you know, family history and dynamics, family psychiatric history, Mm -hmm. social history, academic and school history, and functioning, and I'm involved in that sort of how the, how well this kid is supported in these different environments with their gender, how the schools handling it, you know, a history of abuse and trauma, teasing, and then you know, comprehensive mental health assessment. I use, as you know, <laughs> a battery of psychosocial and gender measures, also largely because I'm a psychologist, and that's what we do. <laughs> we like to use lots. Of, we like to obtain lots of data from many different sources, and find that to be really and interesting and helpful. (laughs) Um, So, so I do that, you know, I think that that does add an important and helpful piece. But I think at the very least, you know, as long as the the clinician is obtaining through the clinical interview, all of those elements I just talked about, that can, you know, that can be pretty darn good. Like if I was going to do just one or the other, I would do that over, you know, just the, uh, just the measures.
1: Yeah, I think that my assessment process is I mean, it's very similar. Um, and I know you do sort of a recommendations aspect. How often does it happen that you recommend something that the family does not recommend, like it's yeah. not in agreement with? That's a
0: great question. So let me first just say that, so I do a, like a feedback session yeah, and which again is consistent with how psychologists do psychological testing you know, in general. Yeah. So we do a feedback session with the parents and the kid, and I really strive to make it as collaborative as possible. You know, so I tell them from the very beginning, from the first appointment, I am not a gatekeeper. I am not gonna be giving you a red light or green light. <laughs> I am just trying to provide you as much additional information as I can based on what I know about this field and what's important information to gather so that you can make the best decision for yourself, teenager and mm-hmm. parents so that you have this information too, to kind of also weigh in. Yeah. And then I remind them of that at the feedback appointment so that they know this is not Laura giving a red or a green light. This is like Laura giving information. And then the way I, I approach it, I, I kind of frame it. I've been more in more recent years um, as like flags. So I'm kind of just looking for any potential flags and, There are certainly red flags. um, So that might be like abuse that really clear, like everyone basically said, yes, the gender stuff started like right when the abuse happened, right after the abuse. (laughs) And the kids even saying, like, I think maybe the abuse impacted me and my gender identity. Right. You know, that would be an example of a a red flag. Um, I would say that. Very, it's not very often that that I find red flags. It's much more often that I'm finding yellow or orange or whatever other color yeah, um, flags that you know are like okay, this is kind of like not doesn't exactly line up. It makes this a little bit more complicated than like the most straightforward cases, and so these might be some things to, to you know to focus on more in therapy or you know might be a reason to slow things down a little bit you know i'm it's very rare that i'm saying absolutely no i don't think you should ever pursue like these things that you're saying you need it might be more that the process seems like it's moving very quickly and because of these like yellow flags it might be in your best interest and safer to just go a little bit slower mm-hmm. And when I frame it like that, I mean, no one is ever really su- that surprised by the information I share in the feedback. It's more often that they're like, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what we thought. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's what I get you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and most of the time, even the teenager, when I suggest that they move a little more slowly, when they hear all the data and all the reasons for doing that, they are usually on board with it, you know, and, and the parents are on board with it. I've also had times when there really weren't flags. And so I had to say to parents who are maybe skeptical, you know there really are no flags like i think your child probably would benefit from moving forward and when the parents have all that information in front of them there's nothing you know then they feel more confident that okay mm-hmm. i guess maybe we should and so then they do and it and it's great I, rarely i mean uh, there of course it does happen where you know i please one and not the other sure <laughs> you know someone someone's happy with me and someone hates me fortunately that does not happen that often and once in a blue moon i will have a situation where i I maybe am saying, you know, I think there's enough flags here that I would slow down. But the youth and the parents do not want to slow down. And they feel that they know, you know, that they are comfortable moving forward. And and so that's fine. You know, that's, you know, but uh, they have all the information that I can provide anyway. And, yeah. you know, then they can make the decision that they feel is best for their kid and for
1: you know, for the kid to make for themselves. So I think our approaches are, well, I'm not surprised. Our approaches are very similar. Um, <laughs> <but> the... <laughs> Other question I have about, um, but about trans girls, right? And I think that, right, we know that it's much less socially acceptable to be assigned male at birth and express yourself femininely than it is to be assigned female at birth and express yourself more masculinely. Um, and two things. So one, when it comes to timing and age with trans girls or girls who uh, or kids who express themselves femininely and say that they identify as as female. Um, do you ever encourage parents to move quickly towards a blocker or help? How do you help them figure out the timing of medical intervention for trans girls?
0: For trans girls? Yeah, this is that's a great question. Um, I am much more concerned and proactive with the trans girls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have a number of wonderful trans women on my caseload right now who did not have the benefit of blockers or, you know, starting estrogen in their teenage years. And it is not easy for them. As I've always known, and the endocrinologist I worked with in Boston, when he first got into this work, that was really what inspired him to work with adolescents and start the first program in the United States was working with trans adults, mostly trans women, Mm -hmm. who just, you know, were really struggling. And so I really lay it out there with the parents in those cases that, you know, not necessarily to start estrogen, but just blockers, you know, something to block the effects of that permanent, you know, masculinization from testosterone, that will make it so much harder for that person to, you know, be perceived by society as female, if that's ultimately how they identify. Right. Um, So, yeah, I do worry a lot about those kids.
1: Yeah, I do, too. And I think that there's a lot of stigma there um, that they're already facing. Um, Do you ever come across uh, trans girls who um, are really fearful or anxious about expressing themselves, uh, expressing their gender femininely and express more neutrally because of the fear of the stigma? especially if they've already entered into puberty.
0: Yes, I see that a lot. And I will tell you though, that it it always concerns me. Um, and I have very direct conversations with them, or I try to, <laughs> because what I think a lot of times ha- is happening for them. And again, I, we're talking about the ones who've already are into male puberty. And so the people perceive them as male. right? Um, and I find that they often have unrealistic ideas about what estrogen is going to actually do. Yeah. And so they have this idea that it is going to automatically make them like, quote, unquote, pass, you know, and, and it's not going to be an issue at all anymore. And so I really encourage them, at least like, come out and present yourself with the people you feel safe with, you know, your family, your close friends, and then I, I do really try to get them to start to do that social transition, even at school and other places before doing anything permanent. You know, and we talk about things like, you know, you can wear a bra and like, you know, get inserts and like do things that are going to basically do what estrogen is going to do for you yeah. to see and test the waters and see if, if it if it does what you think it's going to do. Because, you know, if your voice is already deepened, that's estrogen is not going to change that. And right. so yeah, that's it's it's very
1: difficult. It is a difficult one. I know that a lot of kids, especially kids who are already into puberty, I find, at least in my practice, is there's a that strong desire for the magic wand that just mm-hmm. doesn't exist. It's yep. called transition because it's slow. Right, right. <laughs> Not change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna use that, Mackenzie. <laughs> Go for it. I've said it to many kids. <laughs> well, I want to be mindful of our time Um, and just to ask my final question for you is really what do you see as the future of gender expansiveness and the future of what kids and families can hope for as we move forward as gender continues to evolve into a very different construct than I think that we've seen it historically be. How do we see that sort of taking hold in society? You may not be able to answer that question because you obviously don't have a crystal ball. All right. Well, I, I could, I can give you
0: a optimistic or pessimistic or both response to that. I don't know which you would prefer. This is the end. So I don't know if you want to end on a positive note.
1: (laughs) I want to end on a realistic note. Like I, I think that it's important. I don't try to hide anything from families that I work with and I would go for the same. If anybody listening to the podcast, I really want to make sure that we're being honest and they're coming for support and answers. So.
0: I'll start with the positive. I I mean, I do think that we have come a long way as a society in terms of accepting gender diversity. And I wish we had the, you know, I wish we were where we are now when I was a teenager Mm -hmm. and and young adult. You know, I think it benefits everyone. I think it benefits cis people as much, or maybe not as much, but, you know, a lot, as well as trans and gender diverse people, um, to just not have such strict ideas about gender and sort of what's acceptable and how you present yourself and you know the different roles that you take on and all of those kinds of things and you know of course it's it's a, i think we're moving in a very positive direction in terms of trans people being able to come out and get the services they need and oh my gosh particularly youth you know not having to wait until they're adults to be able to live their life in an authentic way and you know just be able to live and like right, like everybody else you know it's a human right um so i think we definitely have come uh, tremendous way in that regard. And, you know, just the use of medical interventions and recognizing how helpful they can be. I think the part that I'm fearful about is, you know, there is a growing number, I would say, of people who are changing their mind later. And some are okay with that. They, they just see themselves at a different point in their life and they don't regret what they did when they were, you know, when they did make a transition, but others, you know, do regret it. And I don't think it has to be that way. And so that's the part that frustrates me. I my concern is that we may potentially continue to see more and more of that, partly just because there are more numbers of people coming out. And so of course there's going to be more people who maybe don't continue on the original trajectory that they were on. But I also think having talked with a number of people in that who've had that experience and just having read about a lot of experiences of people a part of it is I think on us as mental health and medical providers in our fields to be providing the best care. And what I mean by that is not cutting corners, you know, not, you know, there needs to be more money and resources allocated within pediatric gender clinics and elsewhere, you know, to have a comprehensive mental health team, yeah. you know, to do the part that's really the hardest and, and the most important, I would say, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Dutch, their team, it consists of like 20 some mental health people and like one endocrinologist. You know, th- there is no place in the United States that even comes close to that sort of kind of makeup in their, on their team. So that's the part. I think if we could, if there, there could be less stigma around mental health and mental health treatment and mental health assessment, um, more money put into the places where it needs to be so that it could support that, so that all youth could get an assessment and have mental health therapy and all of that. I think the the field would look phenomenal going forward. I think we'd be in a, in a great place. So maybe we'll get there. Maybe, you know, eventually we'll get there. But that's my only concern, really.
1: Yeah, we can only hope and we can only hope for parents and legislators to advocate for it, too. Right. Yep. Not just something that you and I are going to be able to accomplish together. We're going to need a whole no. bunch of people on board. Well, thank you. I really, really, really appreciate it. I know you're really busy and I really, really value your time. So um, always glad to be able to talk to you.
0: Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks for inviting me.
1: As we wrap up today, I hope that what sticks with you is that this isn't a simple subject and working with professionals that are trained to do this work really matters, just like it matters to work with a cardiologist for issues to do with your heart. Each family is going to approach this different and a good clinician will work with you to help you forge your path forward. Thanks for joining us for Camp Wildheart and being a part of this community. We're here to support you as you support your kid. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Wildheart Society. Or you can send us an email at campwildheartsociety.org. At also on Facebook, we just launched a Camp Wildheart community group. All you have to do is search for Camp Wildheart community and then click to join. I hope to see you there. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future campfires and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us, and we want to make sure that anyone who needs one knows there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart. Take care, y'all.